iTunes presents Meet the Author. Welcome, everybody, to this event, which uh, the Open University has made possible, and which will be preserved for some kind of posterity by Apple iTunes, um, which is wonderful, inexplicable, but nonetheless a fact. <laughs> it's my uh, enormous pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Alexander McCall Smith, about whom I need say no more, except that he's here. He's most welcome, and so are you. Um, we said as we walked along that we would talk about absolutely anything, which we will. But we should mention the fact that you've written another book, which you seem to do, as far as I gather, every second week. Um, now, Corduroy Mansions, of course, which is set in London, in Pimlico, in a wonderfully weathered arts and crafts house, weathered like the face of one of the characters who says, weathered in a national trust kind of way. Yes. And I always think Sandy weathers in a kind of national trust sort of way, one of our, one of our finest ancient edifices. Um, this, this book, of course, uh, in the way that you pioneered in The Scotsman, uh, was serialized in The Telegraph, and it occurs in short episodes, a magnificent little tableau, uh, where we follow the characters in a kind of an archer's sort of way. You, you love this business of the crisscrossing of people, don't you? Yes, yes. And in fact, I was rather surprised uh, at just how much I love, love it, uh, because I started doing that when uh, I did the Scotland Street mm. series in, in The Scotsman. Uh, and I didn't realize how uh, extraordinarily addictive it would be from the writer's point of view, uh, being able to enter the lives of a whole cast of characters and bring them together, let their lives intersect, and then move on to the next bit of action, or in my case, inaction. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing really, really happens so dramatically. And well, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I suppose, you see, what I want to know, for example, I, I don't think it's a question of spoiling the suspense, is it? I mean, we do know that in this book, um, a dog, uh, a Pimlico Terrier, yes. uh, eats a poussin, not a chicken, <laughs> a painting. <laughs> now, um, it's a small poussin, but small it's poussin, no, yeah, not yeah. that it's a poussin. <laughs> now, did you know when you began that the dog would eat the painting? No, no, not at all. I'm uh, sorry uh, if I've spoiled <laughs> it for anyone. I, I, I didn't. That came as a tremendous surprise Nor do they, if they haven't read it uh, yet. I, I, I was really quite shocked, uh, Jim, yes. when... Uh, this happened because I had a terrible been, thing to do. I know, and indeed, indeed when I started writing the uh, writing Corduroy Mansions, I didn't know that there'd be a dog. Uh, the dog came in, uh, uh, more or less, unvite, just arrived. And this happens with the, this sort of book that the characters uh, turn up. And so uh, I, I had had a dog in Scotland Street. Uh, there was a very fine dog called Cyril, mm. uh, who had quite a wide following. People were very concerned uh, about Cyril when unpleasant things happened to Cyril. He was. He was uh, kidnapped from outside uh, Valverne and Crowley's mm. delicatessen. Uh, there's a lot of social detail Some funny in people that. go there. Yeah. <laughs> he was a dog uh, when he was kidnapped, and he was taken off uh, to the periphery of Edinburgh, 
and he managed to was escape. It Duddingston or somewhere uh, like Well, it was, it was actually the, the other side. No, and, uh, <laughs> I thought that. Anyway, yes. <laughs> I didn't want to spell that out, no, no, but, no. but you, you raised the issue. Anyway, uh, he, he was taken off, and uh, he escaped. But before he escaped, uh, I received quite a lot of letters from people and emails from people who were very concerned about uh, his fate. And was Cyril getting enough to eat? Uh, was he being given water, etc., during his yes. uh, endurance? Had vial? he been seen? Had he been spotted? Uh, no, he hadn't been spotted. He just he he saw his chance, and he managed to escape from his kidnappers. And he made his way down to the canal, Edinburgh Canal, uh, the Union Canal, mm. and he walked back towards Edinburgh. Uh, but of course, he didn't really know where he was. And then he caught on the air a, a smell of sun-dried tomatoes, and. Uh, <laughs> So he was back at Valvona and... Yeah, exactly. Well, this, he knew that this was, this was coming from the new town, from his part, yeah, of, of, course. part of town. <laughs> so he made his way back and uh, he was saved. And I had people writing and saying how, how pleased they were uh, that Cyril was back with uh, Angus Lordy. Now, with uh, Freddy de la Haye, uh, who's this... Uh, he's the Pimlico, uh, the Pimlico Terrier. He's also... Pimlico Terrier is quite an unusual uh, breed. Uh, if you, if you Google, uh, Google it, you, you won't find... Uh, much uh, uh, information on them. They, they have another name, uh, which is a Sympatico Terrier. And uh, he's, a, he's a very, very fine uh, character, uh, Freddie, and he's got a big following. When the Daily Telegraph did a, a survey at the end of Corduroy Mansions as to who was the favorite character, Freddie de la Haye uh, won hands down. And of course, <laughs> there's an Oedipal theme in this book, you see, because we've got a ghastly Liberal Democrat MP yeah, the only uh, awful liber liberal democrat. That's a matter I mean, for you, not for me. <laughs> called, uh, uh, called Oedipus, yes. who had a problem with his mother. Yes. <laughs> the late Willie Rushton, you know, a wonderful man, used to have three rules for life. He used to say, never visit a doctor if the plants are dying in the waiting room. <laughs> never go to a dentist with blood in his hair. <laughs> And never consult a psychiatrist who's accompanied by his mother. <laughs> now, if you read Corduroy Mansions, you'll discover there's an Oedipal theme running through, and it, it infects the canine part of the book because he has a split personality. Yes. He's, I mean, he lives in two places. That's the nature of the Pimlico Terrier. Yes. He doesn't know who he is, and he's got problems with his parentage, I think, hasn't he? Uh, Freddy de la Haye. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, many dogs have that uh, problem. They, uh, they don't really know uh, where they come from, and that's no. why uh, dogs well, actually... Indeed, do... in case of Edinburgh dogs, where they're going. <laughs> where they're going. Yeah. Dogs, actually, I'm, I'm interested in observing dogs, and that's why dogs actually occur in, in, in these books quite a lot, because dogs are observers. Of, of our human affairs. And if you look at dogs, they're desperately keen to find out what's going on. They, they see humans rushing around, and clearly there is an agenda, dogs think. Yes. But they actually haven't, they can't work out exactly what, what it is. No. It's rather like doors. They know that doors are vital, and they know that it's possible to open a door. But dogs have not yet advanced <laughs> to the point where they can open yes. a door. Dogs I have colleagues just, just like this. I don't know about, <laughs> you probably have too, yes. Um, but uh, uh, Freddie de la Haye is going to play a major part in the next, uh -huh. uh, the next series. I, I've, I've started writing the next series, which will start running in the, in, in the Telegraph next, uh, next month. And uh, Freddie de la Haye is going to be recruited uh, by MI6 uh, <laughs> to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to do so. I better not tell you exactly no, what, no, but no, he has no, a indeed. task. And he unfortunately, uh, he, he, dis he disappears as well, rather like Cyril. Uh, but MI6 will get him back and get him to a, a safe kennel. And so, uh, a lot lies ahead. Uh, well, 
you see, your worlds, uh, whether in corduroy mansions or in Scotland Street, um, they revolve in a way that is very pleasing in the sense that they remind me of one of these uh, sort of medieval orreries in, in brass where the planets and the suns are all on stalks and wheels turn and things click and it all goes round and then right. it all comes to rest in a perfectly ordered way. And that's what you like because when we get to the end, everything is restored. Yes. It's back to where we were. Yes. And that's what you want, isn't it? Well, I, I think that's probably true. Um, that raises profound issues. I think, I think you're quite right. Uh, but I, I think that it probably is what I, what I want. And I think probably it's what a lot of people actually want out of the world, that we see a world which for most of us is, is um, uh, sometimes somewhat chaotic and certainly often distressing. Uh, the world is in, in many respects a veil of tears and, and, and always has been. And so we contemplate that, and I think that we, we, we feel an intense uh, desire for, for order, for resolution. Resolution in particular, I think, is something which is very, very important to us. And if you look at music, mm. which you know, you, is, is, I know is, is, is a field in which you've, you, you've written wonderfully, actually, um, that its res resolution is what we, we crave in, in music, and an unresolved piece of music um, well, le if you leaves us very, very unsettled. The Tristan chord. Can we talk about the Tristan yeah, well, chord? <laughs> Excuse no, my but, uh, but I mean, here we are, you know, three and a half hours of an opera where there yep. is one chord, maybe the, the most magnificent yep. piece of orchestral writing of one chord that there's ever been at the beginning of Wagner's opera. Right. And three and a half hours later, it is resolved. And the yes. entire thing consists of waiting for the resolution. Waiting for the resolution, yeah. yeah. Well, I, th I think that's what, that's what we want in life. We want resolution. In life, and and I think that uh, often we we find that resolution doesn't occur because that's not the way the world is, and that that, that things left untied. And in a fictional universe, if you if you can actually create a sense of resolution, restoration of order, Auden talked about that with the crime novel. He said there's a very very strong uh, sense that we have that justice must be done, that that the the perpetrator, the malefactor, must be must be found and punished, and that that's why we like the crime novel, the conventional. A detective novel because it, it it wraps things up in that in that sense. Do you read a lot of crime fiction? I, I don't read a great deal, no, of, of crime fiction. Um, I uh, I sometimes described, I mean, obviously because of the number one ladies detective yes. agency books as a writer of crime fiction, which I think actually is a misdescription. It is, isn't um, it? Because you. I mean, it's a detective agency, but of a very peculiar sort. It's a very peculiar sort of detective agency. But actually, the, the point is that if you said to virtually every writer of crime fiction, do you write detective novels, they will say, no, no. not me. No, no, um, no. no I, I write novels. They, they have a sort of crime theme. But yes, yes. I mean, uh, we were talking to Ian Rankin just yeah. before we came in. And if you said to Ian, do you write crime fiction, Ian, he'd say, no, certainly not. Uh, that <laughs> Ribbons just happens He'd to be He'd have a hard detect. job making that one stick, actually. <laughs> but, but there we are, yes. It's interesting. Let's go back to the dog and the painting, because yes. um, I'm interested that when you began, although it was written in, 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 in segments, and, uh, you know, like Dickens, you wrote uh, week by week. Okay. Um, Woodhouse, for example, and we've had this conversation before, but I can't read you and enjoy the way you write. I, I read your piece in Haggis in the New York Times only the other day. All right, thank uh, you. It was a wonderful piece. Um, it's got a Woodhousian character to it. Now, when he planned 
one of those wonderfully intricate, inter intricate, intricate, it's just after lunchtime, <laughs> comic plots, he knew precisely when, you know, Honoria Glossop was going to do what it was and they were going to stick the needle into the, um, uh, the hot water bottle and, and so on, and Madeleine Bassett, the woman whom God forgot, was going to do, et cetera, et cetera. He knew precisely before he began. Yes. Now, you don't. No, not at all. You just, you take off. Yes. And the characters are invented as you go along. You think, well, well why don't we have somebody like, the, you know, the man who's, who's almost killed by the Morris Traveller yes. and the electric shock? Terence Moongrove, yes. Yes, I, I do. I mean, I don't, I don't really plan my, my novels very, very, very much. In, uh, you don't in, need to be embarrassed in, saying that. It's, quite, <laughs> it's all I'm sure Tolstoy Well, I was hoping you wouldn't say, well, it shows. Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't really plan them very much in advance. I have a general idea of what, what is going to happen in the, in the book. And so the, and there may be, in fact, be three or four specific ideas of, yes. of, of developments. And collisions. And uh, exactly. But, but I, I don't actually really um, have, a, have a very um, organized uh, structure for it. And, and of course, many things happen uh, in the books that I hadn't anticipated. In many ways, Edinburgh has been a gift to you, hasn't it? I, not just intellectually, because it's a wonderful place and it's, it's it's where you sort of have your being, but the idea of a house in which different people live, all in sometimes quite elegant quarters, but sort of bump into uh, each other on the pavement is a marvelous yes. device. I mean, it's a fantastic um, excuse because you have to write a story about it. Well, that, that, that of course, was the, one of the great glories of Edinburgh, as you know, and that, that it was certainly one of the great glories of the old town before the new town was constructed, that uh, if people lived in those uh, those tenemental buildings off the high street there in those closes. And in fact, everybody lived there. So you had um, uh, all sorts of people living cheek by, by jowl. The, the, the grandest and, and the most humble uh, could share a stairway. Uh, and so that, I think, uh, was, was in, that gave rise to an intensely democratic spirit without over, overdoing yes. our judgment of that. But that, that I think, is not unconnected with, with the notion of, uh, of, of Scottish um, egalitarian uh, democratic notions, the democratic in intellect, and so on. And so people, people um, really were, were bound up with, with one, one another uh, in, in a rather, probably excessively, because it was pretty malodorous stuff. Uh, and then they moved out to the, to the new town. And then you still had, a, had people living together, although you didn't have quite the same juxtaposition no. of, of people from of different classes. Of classes. No. Um, although there were bits of the new town until until comparatively recently in the in the late 60s, for example, just off a very grand street, Harriet Row, you would find um, Jamaica Street, which wasn't all that salubrious, and, and so on. Um, and so th there was still that notion of, of a mixture of people, and you can still get it in parts of the, of the Edinburgh New Town. Parts of the Edinburgh New Town have become uh, terrifically grand and very expensive, and therefore uh, you will get uh, the haute bourgeoisie living next door to the haute bourgeoisie, which isn't much fun, you know. If you put the haute bourgeoisie together, it's Indeed, get, it's a, yes. it gets a bit dull. Um, but uh, Scotland Street actually was an example of a surviving street uh, from the old pattern where you, you had people who'd maybe lived there for 30, 40 years uh, with a, a smattering of students and, and others, and, uh, and uh, it still has that, uh, has that character. And so it, it, it really lends itself to this sort of treatment, as you say. When I started to write Corduroy Mansions, um, one or two people said to me, well, it's all very well postulating 
uh, a shared house in London. But the difficulty is that in London they wouldn't talk to one another, whereas they would talk to one another in, 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 in Edinburgh. Now, I don't know how true that is. Well, you, you think, might be able to Well, I think this, I, uh, yeah, there may be some truth in it, but I think the sorts of houses that you um, describe here in Pimlico, where there are 20-somethings yeah. rattling around, yes. probably because um, you know the, the parent has allowed them to pay the rent for six months or yeah. something. I think they probably would talk to each other yes. because they'd yeah. be rattling home, yes. you know, at four in the morning or sure. something. I mean, well, you, know, I, I you meet somebody on the step. I mean, I have the yes. the awkward uh, situation where uh, our youngest child is 18, and I leave for work at half past three in the morning, and it's not uncommon that I'm going to work. <laughs> Anyway, we'll Coming leave it at that. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's always rather charming, and I'm checking that she's standing up straight and all that kind of thing. Rather like the old police station, can you walk along this straight line? Anyway, and we have a cheery uh, hug, and then, you know, I go off to work, and she goes to bed, and that's life. So, you know, one does talk to people who live yeah. in the same house from time to time. No, I think it, it, that seems to me quite accurate about Pimlico. In the, in the sense, I think that's how it would work. Well, I'm delighted but, to hear that. that but so. they are... Um, they're empty-headed, most of them. Well, yeah, yes. Except the dog. <laughs> well, they, they are. I mean, some of, the, um, some of them are a bit. But this, this is, this is um, relatively light social comedy yes, yes, with yes, bits tacked on. Indeed. In that I do want to talk about more serious matters in these books. And, and I hope that we do manage to deal with those. Uh, even serious if only, questions. Serious questions. Even, I'm just trying to think of any that we do deal with in Cordero. Yes, yeah, you're, you're uh, welcome to, to raise one. Yes, 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 your yes, next yes. question. But I, I, th I think that um, uh, they, they, you might describe them as a, uh, as a bit uh, empty-headed, but they, they, have, they have inner lives. William French, uh, one of the main characters, the wine dealer, he's, he's a man who's, who's looking for something, and he's, he does have ideas, and, and I think... Uh, can't in, find it. Well, he can't, he can't quite find, find it, but that, that I think, is, 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 is probably quite important from the fictional point of view, because I think that uh, if you look at a lot of, of the characters that I write about, they never quite find what they're looking mm. for, and that, of course, is, is the story, effectively, because if you had everybody... It's the story of the Vale of Tears. Yes, if, if, you, had, if you had everybody finding what they wanted... Uh, in the first ten pages, then there'd be no novel. <laughs> so uh, we have these uh, these people looking for things. D downstairs, uh, who's the health food uh, vitamin uh, expert, uh, with this great interest in uh, colonic uh, irrigation. Uh, she, the man she, with the marble stuck in his intestine for several decades, is a, yes, one I enjoy. I know that's, very that's much. a terrible thought, isn't yes. it? <laughs> well, it's, a, it's only a marble. And you see, the colonic irrigation is such a silly thing, and yet it, it's, it's, it's a big threat in this book. It's about the biggest threat in any of my books. Yes. <laughs> we could, don't go in for serious stuff. Could but you, the threat yes. of colonic irrigation is, is, is really quite intense. Indeed, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't bear thinking about it. Um, could you write an angry book? Uh, You're not an angry man. Uh, well, well uh, probably couldn't. I mean, I suppose I, I, I could. I, I don't know what, how authentic it would, would be. I, I think that if I tried to write things other than those things that I already feel comfortable in writing, um, I would feel, uh, feel that I was, I was trying to do somebody else's job in a way. It's a very interesting word, authentic, isn't it? Do you think that there is an authenticity about an author that communicates itself to a reader? I think there probably is. I think that um, most authors um, are, are probably 
um, relatively, uh, I suppose, truthful to their muse. Uh, they're, they're, they're writing what they want to write. I think that um, when you, sometimes you read a book and you think the author doesn't believe in this. And I think that that shows, and mm. those books uh, often don't make the first hurdle. Uh, I remember reading about the advice that was given by uh, the publishers of Mills and Boone uh, romantic novels, uh, that if you want to write one of these things, because many people feel that they can uh, establish their, their fortune by writing uh, a, a bodice ripper, and uh, they, um, they say you actually really have to believe in this. Stop if you're thinking of doing this in a cynical way. Um, you, you really and they think, and they that. think you can, but you can't. And they're, they're, that's right. And they say that it will be uh, quite apparent that you actually don't uh, believe in any of this romantic stuff. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, authors, um, authors have to be true to, to their particular muse. Because you see, you, you use the phrase um, light social comedy, um, which is part of the appeal of this book and, and others, although it's not the whole appeal, obviously. Um, but it's. <laughs> It's interesting that even if you're writing in a way which is designed, above all, uh, to create a bit of fun, to, to amuse, to challenge, to engage, and in the end, to satisfy, it's nonetheless a wearing process for the writer. There's a kind of um, nakedness involved, isn't there? Yes, it, it is. I think that writing is, is, is quite an emotionally uh, exhausting uh, exercise. You're, you're actually engaging in a, in a very, very public conversation. Uh, and even a private conversation can be emotionally uh, exhausting. But doing that uh, constantly uh, to uh, what may amount to an audience of, 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 say, many millions of people uh, is, is, is really... Uh, do you, do you find that... Does that as the years go on, with this extraordinary success in recent years, uh, does, that, does that weigh on you at all or not? Uh, it, it does weigh on me in, in the sense that I'm, I'm uh, very conscious of, um, of the responsibilities associated with it without trying, trying to sound too, too mm. formal or pompous about it. But it, it actually is a terribly responsible, mm. um, responsible thing. Uh, I, I find I've, I've learned that lesson. Um, after it, it happened to me. I wouldn't have understood this um, before it you happened. You can't understand it in, in, in a vacuum, can uh, you? That, that, that's right. I think one might theoretically say, oh, yes, we see, see, what, see what you mean about it. But actually, until it happens to you, you don't really grasp uh, the full significance of, of creating characters uh, that other people become very emotionally uh, in, involved in. Even uh, if they're a dog. And even with the dog, well, you see, the dogs are the interesting, yes. Uh, the fact that these dog characters, who were always fairly, I'd intend to be fairly peripheral, actually for many people are really very, very important. Uh, that's quite a thought. Uh, Mara Matsui is, uh, is an example of that, in that when I created Mara Matsui, I had no idea that I would be embarking on, on that sort of conversation with, with, with a very large number of people. People who actually really, um, they know Mara Matsui isn't real, but they sort of, believe in her, as indeed I sort of believe in her. So we're, we're all in the same boat, in a sense. I'm not distancing myself. I'm not saying, oh, well, I know that she's fiction. I'm, I have exactly the same approach to my characters. They are, they are real for me in a, in, in a way in which uh, I, I would hope that they're real for the, for, for, for the readers. There's a mystical <coughs> quality to this, isn't there? You have to believe in things that you know are not real. Yes. 
to a degree which goes beyond the normal rational limits yes. of how we think about daily life. Well, I, I, exactly. I think that, that you touch upon a, a, a very interesting thing there, that in a sense, when you're writing uh, about a fictional world and creating these characters, you're actually participating in a, a joint exercise of belief, in a way, uh, which is not um, 100 miles away from uh, the way in which one might approach, say, uh, a political, uh, sorry, ideological or, or religious uh, yes. position. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, for example, it's possible to to uh, subscribe to a religious belief and say, well, I don't really believe this, but I believe that it's important that we should participate. Or uh, I don't believe this. this and that about it, yeah. but there's enough there. It's it's what uh, you have writers in the, in that field who talk about the discipline of orthodoxy in whatever yep. faith or denomination yes, it is yes. as being something which in itself really has a meaning beyond the meaning that people will put on the various bits of it. I, 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 exactly. And, and, and in, in a deed, indeed it's the, the symbolic power of, of, the, of the particular beliefs uh, that, that actually really can become quite important. So I know that Mara Matsui, for example, um, does help people. Uh, I get letters all the time uh, fr from people who say that uh, they've been helped and... She's interceded. She's interceded, <laughs> well, yes, uh, without getting too, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, too, far down, going too far down that line. But if, if that's the case, uh, I, I've got no problem with that. I, I'm perfectly happy to, 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 to uh, accept that. And so, for example, sometimes I get very, very moving letters. I often get very moving letters from people who've, uh, who've perhaps had something terrible happen in their lives and actually they've, Maramatsui, they've read Mar Mar about Maramatsui, and I will often write back and say, Maramatsui um, is thinking of you, or something like that. Now that may sound corny, but actually it's a part of the well, joint. But it's not that different, yep. is it, from, and we've talked about this before, where you, growing up, were fortunate to be given a lot of poetry to read, yes. a lot of uh, wonderful fiction to read, which you, which you took to, which became a reality yes. to you, particularly when you were living in Africa. Yes. And, and that was obviously something that convinced you of the reality of the fictional. Yes, I think, I think that's right. I mean, it's possible that I never really progressed from, from the earlier stage of believing in the reality of the fictional, and that, that we all believe that when we're children. We, we, we read, uh, read stories and, and we live in those stories and we, we, we tend to think that the, that's, that's real. I had a trunk in our attic that I believed was Captain Flint's trunk right and I used right. to crawl into it and I you know right. for 10 minutes I would actually believe it and I still think when did actually, you stop uh, doing that this may have been, when <laughs> I stopped <laughs> we'll talk about this later but um, I no longer have it so I can't crawl into it in an Oedipal sort of way but um, I'm still searching for that trunk that I can crawl back into it but but you know we, we all have that relationship with well you know yeah. Stevenson which I think you read as a boy with enormous pleasure yes. I did and yes. it, it, it gripped you because it yes. was a magical world that yes. you felt you were part of although yes. it was yes. extraordinarily remote yes and that's part of the job of fiction that's what uh, what, what, what rolls down the years to you now from those first experiences as a boy what that you read then has somehow remained resonating somewhere in there I, I suppose it probably would be um, it would be poetry uh, more than, more than anything else, and that which I you learnt. I learnt by rote. Yes, uh, I had to learn by rote. It's uh, a pity that by rote has become a pejorative term. Because yes, 
the well, sooner I, that stops, the better, because uh, learning a poem is a good thing, isn't it? Well, it, 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 learning a poem Sorry is a good thing. Sorry to sound old-fashioned, but... Um, uh, learning a poem is, is a good thing because it, it actually stays with you uh, in this life, and, and uh, I, I think that one can get great comfort from, from poems, remembered poems. The problem is it's difficult to remember them. <laughs> <laughs> but they come back at moments of stress, don't well, they? Well, I, I was talking just, just before to, to Alison Bowden, who runs the City of Literature, uh, program, and she said she'd met somebody who had a line of T.S. Eliot tattooed on his, on his hand, and uh, that this, uh, this is... Uh, it's this going a, a bit far. Well, it, what, the fact what that line, it's Eliot or... What, what or line... What, <laughs> well, what, yes, quite. Well, what You'd line, Woodhouse. Well, it, well, I, well, it, well it, it, I wonder what the line was. Do you know? Um, I will show you uh, fear in a handful it of It was, let you go then, uh, let us go then, you and I. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Which I mean is not. I wouldn't tattoo that. No, 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 uh, no. If you were, uh, good, if you were to choose a tattoo of a line of any point, what would it be? <laughs> it would be. Um, it this would is be, rather good, um, isn't it? <laughs> Auden. I choose. I uh, choose something. Yeah, well, Auden pops up all yeah. over the place in Auden, your, in your I, fiction. I'm, I'm what, what is it about you and Auden? Well, I'm very, very keen on Auden. We'll come back to the line I, in a moment. I, but I I'm remember, not going to let you off that hook. But <laughs> I remember the 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 exact moment uh, when I first became involved with Auden's work. I, I remember being in the library and picking the book off the shelf, uh, Collected Shorter Poems of W.H. Auden, and I can see the book. There's a yellow cover. Uh, it, ha it had, yeah, well, that was the, this one, when you remove the yellow cover, you get a blue binding. And this is the blue binding. I've got the yellow cover edition <laughs> at, uh, at home. And I discovered this, this, this wonderful voice, and it was the voice. Uh, the, the, here was somebody who was, was talking to me. To you. And, yeah. and talking in a way which just made sense. Of the of the world, these wonderful humane insights, and uh, so I I started putting Auden in the books, and Isabel Dalhousie is very keen on Auden. Yes. And Auden cropped up in Fort, Fort Scotland Street. Then I had a letter from uh, W. H. Auden's executor, um, Edward Mendelssohn, Professor Edward Mendelssohn, who's a professor of English at Columbia in New York, and out of the blue, this wonderful letter from uh, Edward Mendelssohn saying, you know, I think uh, that. Um, W. H. Auden and Mara Matsui would have agreed on 100% of topics. <laughs> <laughs> what an unlikely combination! It was a, and this wonderful two-page letter from him, in which he said that he 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 read the books and he felt that uh, yes. uh, that Mara Matsui and Auden were on the same wavelength. And I wrote back to him and said, "Well, this is uh, obviously I can cannot receive a letter from Auden, uh, who is, as they'd say in Botswana, late." Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But it, well, the next best thing was to get a letter from Auden's executor. And I was coming to New York, and could we meet for lunch? And we met for lunch, and we got on very well. And uh, I said to him, would you like to be in one of the books? And he said, it's well... what he does, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yes. And so he occurred in Isabel Dalhousie. Yes. And he's appeared in a number of the old Isabel Dalhousie. Mm. And then a uh, couple of years, uh, last year, um, I uh, had written an Isabel Dalhousie book in which Edward comes to Edinburgh and gives a, uh, a lecture on the sense of neurotic guilt in Auden. And, uh, it's, the, it's the place to do it, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, well, yes. it is, yes, yes exactly. Yes, yes. And so then, in real life, I brought Edward Mendelssohn to Edinburgh and had him give that actual lecture <laughs> in real life. And it so was, we're, we're back to fiction and reality. Yeah, that's, and, and not only that, in the book he goes back and has dinner at Isabel Dalhousie's house. And in real life, he came back and had dinner at our house, where we invited all the other real people who were friends of Isabel Dalhousie in the fictional world. 
Now, you'd think that people would have better things to do. Uh, <laughs> not in Edinburgh. <laughs> um, so, what's, I'm not letting you off here. No. What's the line of Auden that you would tattoo on your inside wrist? Um, I, I suppose, well, there's so many, it'd be difficult to choose. Uh, I suppose there is one line which I think is tremendously uh, prof uh, uh, profound in, in one of his shorter poems. Uh, May the more loving one be me. And that is, uh, I think, that it it's a profound. simple line, but it really, it, it's, if ever one wanted to have some sort of um, goal, a moral goal in this life, uh, how could you beat that? May the more loving one be me. I mean, it's, it's in a sense, uh, there's more to it in the, in the poem. There, there are layers of meaning there, which yes. are complicated, but, but I think that's a good line. I wouldn't want to suggest that you see yourself as a, as a moral novelist, somebody pursuing a cause. Maybe you do. But my question's a different one. When you write something like Corduroy Mansions or the, the Dalhousie stories or any of them, or whether it's Maramotswe, do you see yourself as in any way defending some kind of moral order or supporting it or holding on to it or caring for it? Yes, I, 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 I probably do. I, I, don't, I don't have um, a political no. um, or, or moral agenda in a sense with the books mm. in the time uh, I don't sit down and say, well, this is what I want people to think about. Um, but I suppose inevitably um, writing is, is, is an act of moral significance. Um, and uh, I suppose I probably would say yes. Generally speaking, there are certain values that I, like most people, uh, would tend to uh, would tend to support, and um, uh, I'm perfectly happy to to have the characters in the books uh, supporting those and those you values. Can't, it goes back to what we said about the nakedness of writing. Yeah. You can't, in the end, conceal them, or the authenticity goes. I I, th I think that's right. Uh, yes, I think that if I were to write about people who took a rather nihilistic view of the world, uh, I, my heart wouldn't be in it. Uh, whereas I suppose I'm writing about people like Mara Matsui, whom I admire, um, uh, who, who actually would take a, a completely different view of, of, of the world. I'm going to open this up in just a moment, but I want to raise a couple of very quick questions, uh, which I think are intriguing and will, will interest people. In terms of writers whom you admire, um, Let's take 20th century novelists. Uh, where do you find the sort of cooling balm of great writing? Well, I, I'm fairly eclectic in, in my, my uh, uh, reading tastes, uh, Jim, so uh, I would take it from all sorts of places. Um, I, I, I think if I want, if, if I want a, a, a rational, uh, relatively um, I suppose, uh, ordered and cool look at the world, uh, I have a great deal of time for Graham Greene. Um, but um, I take different things from different, uh, different writers. Barbara Pym is a great Barbara Pym. enthusiasm of yours. Why? Well, Barbara Pym, I think, is screamingly funny. I mean, she really is a marvelously funny. In a funny cool kind of way. Yes, in a cool, very understated, sort of cardiganish way. Although, cardigans are coming back in, by the way. <laughs> 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 well, 
will all be in cardigans before uh, long. I, uh, I, I was under, of the view the cardigans were terrifically old-fashioned, quickly looking round to see who's wearing yes, them. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, when um, the lights go up, it'll and be And there's old. a dog, anyway, by the yes, way. You yes, see yes, dogs yes. come along as well. Of course. Uh, um, but... Um, Fall uh, asleep as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right, dogs are yes. so honest. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But... Um, uh, Barbara Pym and Cardigans are sort of all tied up together. Yes. But uh, no, Bar Barbara Pym, I think, is a wonderful uh, observer of, of the tiny little uh, nuances of social interaction. Uh, tiny little things, in my view, can be immensely significant. And I think a lot of my books are concerned with really small matters. Whether Esau is a hairy man or an hairy man. Uh, exactly. Now, that, that's something we could talk about. Well, for indeed, a, for a long time. A long time. Uh, yes. Uh, but um, uh, tiny little things, uh, or the pronunciation of Gillen, that some people uh, mistakenly refer to as Gullen. Yes, Have you heard yes. That? Uh, well, indeed. Yeah. Or Corduroy, or Corduroy, oh, yes, yeah. we're off. <laughs> right. Yes. Anyway. So, so these things are really... Really important, and indeed in, in 44 Scotland Street, this uh, business about the blue spode cup that was taken from uh, Domenica's flat and possibly stolen by her neighbor. This went on for a long time. Yes. There were chapters devoted to it. And yeah. There's only one theft, <laughs> or potential theft. Uh, so th these things are, in, in my view, very, very important. And Barbara Pym, I think, is, is, is uh, an absolute uh, master of that uh, ability to, to find the pathos of human existence in very, very little concerns, in the interstices of, of, of bigger, because bigger it, events. Because it's there. Because it's there. She, she's, I suppose you could, if you were looking for um, a name for this sort of approach, you could say that it's, it's, it's uh, uh, the intimacy that you find in, in, in French, uh, uh, French painting of the uh, early 20th century, the uh, Vuillard and Bonnard, were, uh, they were concerned with antimism, you know, the, the tiny little details of... So that's a visual equivalent of, of, of uh, an intimate novel, and she's, she does that. One other question before I open it up. Music. Um, you are a participant in the really terrible orchestra. Yes. <clears throat> one of its better accoutrements. Uh, well, I'm, no, I'm, I'm well, one of the weaker brethren. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of the weaker brethren there. The people but, who can play much better than uh, I can. What... Um, when you're writing and you're in need of uh, solace, help, a little bit of assistance along the way, what do you like to have bubbling along underneath? Uh, I do, in fact, listen to music when I write. Um, some people are very sniffy about that. Mm. Some writers say, oh, you can't, it gets in the way of the words. Oh. Do but uh, I'm, uh, do, you, do you actually play music when you write? Do you, um, uh, I suppose if you're writing about music in particular, that might be problematic. Yeah, but, I was um, so far behind with the deadlines and stuff that right. I couldn't afford to... Was, anyway. But I, 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 do, I, do have, um, I do have music um, uh, playing in, the, in the background. Uh, but, uh, yes, that would be, I suppose, yes, ordered, elaborate. Uh, I have... Um, uh, will listen to um, Mozart, uh, to, but not, not, not all of Mozart, I mean, just yeah. particular bits. What, piano concertos or so, what? Well, uh, I actually listen... Uh, when I'm writing Isabel Dalhousie, I will often have playing in the background one or two pieces, uh, which I will then play uh, possibly for hours. Yes. Um, uh, it, it puts me in, in, in a particular mood. And the Soave Seal Vento yes, from Cosy uh, is, is, to me, the most wonderful, wonderful piece of music, and I refer to it from time to time in, in the books, but it's often playing in the background because it's, it's such a gorgeous, 
uh, gorgeous uh, uh, piece of music. Um, and it's, it's got such a wonderful message. May, may your voyage through, through, through life be a, a, an easy one. May but the of course, be. it's an artifice. Well, yes. They know. That's the great thing. Yes. I mean, when this uh, trio begins yes. at the end of Act One, he participates in it, and he knows it's all a game, yes. and there you are. I know, I know. I don't like no, to... No, it's utterly authentic. Yes, yes. Well, I suppose, that, you know, the problem is you can, you can deconstruct things, as you've just done. Well, I don't... I don't I'm uh, not in favour of deconstruction. <laughs> no, it's the Edible Complex coming out again. Uh, it's a wonderful... Look, uh, we're not going to have time for a long conversation unless we do it now. So what I'd like to do is to ask the roving mic to do its dread work. And um, if anybody wants to um, stick a hand up, we'll get the lights up and see all the cardigans, which will inevitably, <laughs> not to mention the dog, the dog might even wake up. Yeah, there's, there's one here. Wait for the mic to come and then just keep those hands going up and they will, they will materialize as they do out of the darkness. Thank you. Hello. I've just finished The Unbearable Lightness of Scones, which was a wonderful title. Thank you. And um, this is a very frothy question to start everyone off. Right. It's appropriate and for a <laughs> light scone, yes. Yeah. But in, indeed, yes. And, well, just as a, a, an aside, I was astonished with, with what happened to Lard O'Connor. I won't yes. say what happened in case people haven't, but it was an astonishing moment. But the, the question is, um, there are a few really hilarious references to the use of moisturiser yes. throughout the book, <laughs> which I thought were so funny. And I just wanted to ask you... How you deserved, yes. <laughs> if you'd observed an increase in the, the use of such products and why they were there. That's so tightly put. Yeah. <laughs> I think if we had thought beforehand as to the range of questions yes. that we might get, we the increased on. use of moisturiser probably wouldn't be one of them. Anyway, yes, answer, please. Well, well, well in fact... Come on, we, give us an answer. <laughs> I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to the, the, real, the real question in, in a moment. But, yeah, moisturiser is discussed because that uh, was a, t a topic that I'd, I'd become interested, uh, interested in. I think I, think I was given uh, a, a bottle of moisturiser uh, by a niece of mine. Um, and, uh, Did it have a message attached? Or was it just <laughs> well, it, it, was, um, uh, it, it was actually, I, so I did start to apply it. And uh, I, I found it. I found actually it feels very, very nice when you've got moisturiser. And then I bought a wonderful uh, ra electric razor, which has got a reservoir of moisturiser. You, oh, Jim, you must in. try. You, oh, I'll really? give you the, yes. the name. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. You really. We'll talk afterwards. Yeah. And you and you press the button, and it moisturises you while as you go. That's terrific. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's really good. Oh, there's uh, a column in this. <laughs> okay. We're like the two old men and the Muppets. You know, saying that. <laughs> And it's jolly anyway, good. Yes. Well, someone like you who gets up at half past three exactly. in the morning, yes. it's terrific because you, you'd be sort of searching Indeed. for your moisturiser in yes. the darkest. And you'd just get your razor and Indeed. the moisturiser would smart come myself through, before so. I meet my daughter coming in after That's right. <laughs> so moisturiser was, was uh, yes, we, uh, we had great fun, uh, uh, great fun with it. And actually I had even further fun. I was, um, I, I was being interviewed. Um, it, it wasn't live, but uh, in, uh, um, in the U.S., and uh, I was being asked all sorts of tremendously uh, complicated and, and, and weighty questions. And uh, at the end of the interview, uh, while they were still filming it, um, I said, well, there is another issue that I'd like to discuss. And they, they thought I was going to come up with some other uh, observation. I said, I'd like to discuss 
uh, the very, very thorny issue of whether men should actually use moisturizer more quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and they filmed the whole thing, but they promised not actually to, to show that bit of the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's... Uh, anyone else here? Can I, is there a hand up? <coughs> yes, here. We'll get a mic. That one will come over to you. And then just keep them coming up, so... I'm a little concerned by the fact that we've now moved to London with your work. Uh, are we going to come back to Scotland Street and, and Africa? Because yes. I'm dying to know whether Bertie eventually murders his mother. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yes, the, the, the answer is that I'm going to continue to write. Uh, uh, there'll be a new Corduroy Mansions this year, but there's also going to be a new... Uh, Scotland Street. Yeah, and Scotland yeah, Street yeah. will start in The Scotsman in October and then it'll come out as a book um, next year. And I've already written the first 25 chapters of the next uh, Scotland Street. Bertie, now poor little Bertie, uh, he's, he's actually grown no older. He's still, uh, he's still six and uh, he's still got his mother. I was in Australia recently and somebody uh, uh, stood up and said, uh, could something uh, really unpleasant happen uh, to Bertie's mother and uh, I said well I felt I really couldn't do that because I didn't want Bertie to, to, to suffer so um, however I did speculate we did talk about what sort of accident uh, Irene uh, could have and we decided it would be a flotarium uh, accident uh, that she'd, she'd get into the flotation chamber and they would have made a mistake with the Epsom salts uh, <laughs> and she'll sink <laughs> but we now know that whatever happens, it won't be that. I or he wouldn't have told it. <laughs> well, that's my... Yeah, yeah, well... Poor little Bertie. He's going to go... He's joined the Cub Scouts, as you may recall, in the last volume. He joined, so he's um, got to begin to grow up. Well, no, he's still... He's still he, he lied about his age, as they... Uh, like a volunteer in the First War, saying... Yes. Yeah, and he, he said he was eight, and in fact he's only six. But he got into the Cub Scouts, and he, then he discovered that Olive, this detestable little girl yes. had joined as well and another little boy who's I'm going to develop as a character a bit more Ranald Braveheart McPherson yes. uh, uh, we're going to see a bit more of him but Bertie uh, without giving the whole game away Bertie's going to go to a Cub Scout camp mm. uh, and his mother's going to go as well as a helper <laughs> to chaperone him against the Girl Scouts over the hill yeah, we've all had that experience. There's a, hand at the, there's a hand at the back there. She's Violet Elizabeth Bott, isn't she, really? Is she, Olive, yes, she is. Yes. She's, she's, she's dreadful. You like the William books, don't you? I love the William books. I read every William book uh, there, there was. I really enjoyed it. It was a distant world. I mean, sitting in Africa and reading yes. about William. Yes, yes, yes. No, it was wonderful. Yes. Hello, uh, two-parter. Um, firstly, are deadlines your friends or your enemies? And secondly, you've taken the RTO far west to America. Um, are you thinking of bringing it just west to the west of, the west of Scotland? Right. Um, deadlines. Deadlines. Uh, dead, uh, deadlines, actually, I, I think are, are um, important in that they encourage you to finish things or even to begin things. Uh, and so, so I think they, uh, they do serve a purpose. And I, I don't worry too much about them uh, in the sense of, well, I try to respect them, but uh, they, they, they aren't too... Uh, too, too, too frightening for, for, for me. I mean, some people are terrified of deadlines, but I suppose I'm not, not too terrified. Because you write pretty regularly, don't you? You feel it possible yep. to 
sit down and just say, how rigid are you about the time that you spend I, I, I do. I'm quite, uh, uh, I have to be quite um, yes. disciplined about that, uh, Jim, because otherwise, uh, you know, well, I yes. just wouldn't be able to do, so do you, what you I do. So you go, it's, it's a sort of day at the office. You go into the room, you sit at a desk. Yes. Describe what it looks like. Well, it, it, it's, a, uh, it, it's a cluttered desk, um, and every so often uncluttered. But I, I will, uh, it, when I'm at home, uh, I'll write there, and I'll try to write for a couple of hours. Uh, I can write in all sorts of circumstances. Uh, the first part of this year, I've been largely abroad most of the, most of the year, and I was writing in hotels and uh, aeroplanes. I write in planes and trains. Um, so uh, aeroplanes, I can I can get a chapter done uh, on a, a journey for two. Yes. Well, even a, a sh I find the shorter flights a little bit e e easier in a way, uh, in that I just get on and then I'll, I'll write for a couple of hours and we've arrived at the destination. So, so I did when I was travelling around America a lot earlier this year. I I wrote quite a lot of um, of uh, uh, I can't recall whether it was Corduroy Mansions or. Mm. Um, actually, it was Isabel Dalhousie. I suppose the nice time. thing is if you're writing a work which has got discrete <coughs> chapters, where you yeah. almost in the, the arc of a short story, where you yes. want a beginning, a middle, and an end, yes. you've got a kind of. Um, it, it doesn't stretch before you into infinity. Exactly. You know what you want to do. Exactly. Exactly. No, that, no that's right. Your second question about Glasgow, about taking the RTO to Glasgow. Uh, we went, as you know, to the RTO went to New York. Um, uh, and uh, did a concert in New York on April the 1st, uh, <laughs> the uh, New York Town Hall. Uh, packed audience. Of the, course. Uh, New York has got the joke. And um, <laughs> that w went really very well. And we did talk about uh, going to Glasgow, and we are, I think, going to try at some stage to get to Glasgow and do a concert in, in, in Glasgow. And I thought, and I suggested the title of this concert should be the really terrible or orchestra salutes Glasgow. And I think <laughs> yes. that would be very successful. <laughs> I think it might well be. We're getting into very dangerous waters here. Um, is anybody else? Uh, yes, there's a hand just here. That's it. It's on its way. Um, I'm just reading 44 Scotland Street for the first time at the moment. I haven't finished it yet. So <laughs> you lucky <But> thing. <laughs> but um, going back to the reality and fiction, I was... Pat and the gallery owner have just been to Ian Rankin's house. Yes. And I wondered how the conversation went with Ian Rankin before that went in, and also, does he really have a hot tub in his house? Yes, well, he does have a hot tub. He has a hot tub uh, at the back of the house, and uh, in that book, they go and see him, and he's sitting in the hot tub when, when they s see him. Uh, Ian is, is my neighbour uh, two, uh, two doors away, and uh, so I said to him that I was proposing to put him into... Scotland Street, was that right? And he said, yes, it was okay. And uh, so then I put it and I showed him the episode before it was published. And he comes out of it quite well uh, in the sense that he behaves rather well. And he said to me, I would never behave so well. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had him uh, in the last Scotland Street, Bertie, when they, uh, they're doing the navigation exercises in, in the meadows, they come across the Royal Company of Archers. Uh, shooting for the golden arrow. You know, the yes. archers really can't shoot for for, for, for no, 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 no. And, uh, and they shoot the Ian uh, Rankin. Uh, and, uh, and then he goes, uh, um, uh, little Tofu and Bertie uh, say that they know where the archers' uh, uh, headquarters are, and they'll take Ian Rankin to go and remonstrate uh, with them. And so they walk along the crude place, and they go past that bookshop, and... <laughs> 
And uh, Bertie says, oh, look, Mr. Rankin, there's one of your books in the window there, and it's only 50p. <laughs> have had that experience. But, um, <laughs> he, um, he doesn't need to worry. Is there a, uh, anyone... Um, who else? We're, we're, yes, there's one over here. And then we'll gently and elegantly reach a sort of coda. Um, before I came across your lovely novels, um, I had encountered you uh, giving ordinary lectures up the road at the law faculty. Oh. Um, <laughs> I noticed that you um, dedicated one of your books recently to Professor Mason. Yes. Um, I wondered if, if you missed the law, I suppose, and whether you'll ever make another appearance at the old college. Well, well thank you. Um, I, I, uh, uh, I, I do, I suppose, miss what I used to do before, um, but not, uh, not all that much, or not too much. Um, I do miss uh, Professor Mason, of course. Well, he's, he's still doing it. He's a wonderful, wonderful character, Ken Mason, as you as I, I can see you agreeing with me in, in that respect. And we worked together uh, very well over, over many, many years. And uh, there's Ken, um, who without giving away his age, but it's somewhere around about 90, still working uh, actually a full day, which is uh, terrific, a very distinguished uh, um, medico-legal person, forensic pathologist. So uh, yeah, yeah. I um, as to whether I'll ever go back, uh, the answer I think is is no, actually, because uh, you 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 get very very rusty very quickly. Uh, you forget um, uh, virtually everything you ever knew, uh, such as it was about a particular subject. I find extremely quickly, and um, so I, I I think it would be unwise to try to go back. Do you think you'll still be writing when you're ninety? Well, if, if I'm spared, uh, I, would hope, uh, I would hope to continue writing uh, yes, until... Yes, it will just continue. Because yes, I think so. It does hope seem so. as if it's become, you've been writing for many, many years, but of course in recent times you've had an extraordinary worldwide success. But writing to you uh, isn't a business. It's, uh, it's something that just seems to be absolutely natural. It's like conversation. Well, it's, uh, yes, I suppose... I'm not saying it's easy. No. Well, I if it were a great effort for me, and if I found that I, I was sitting there saying, oh, heavens, I've got to write, uh, then I think I might be tempted to, 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 to stop or perhaps not do quite so much. But, but it's not really like that. And in, in a way, I, I don't actually have to think uh, about it. I, I go into a sort of trance, mm. and I don't, I'm hardly aware of my surroundings. And it's just come straight... Uh, straight, straight out. There is a danger, isn't there, <laughs> that the, the cult of the, uh, the agony-ridden writer yes. who gazes at the empty page has become a very dominant kind of picture. And the yes. truth is that most writers, though they may agonize from time to time and may worry about a character or an ending and yes. go to sleep worrying about it, do it because they love it. Yes, I, I, I think that that's absolutely, absolutely right. People talk about writer's block, you know, the pe people uh, often... You used to refer to the place where you live with Mr. Rankin and a certain <laughs> other writer who should be nameless. It was known as writer's block, writer's but block. there we are. No, it's an old they, joke. <laughs> they go on about the, um, the psychological uh, writer's block, and, and, and I'm often asked um, at, at events, people oh. say, do you suffer from writer's block? And uh, the answer is, is no, I think write, writer's block um, is, is a condition which is, has really been rather exaggerated. And uh, I suspect that people 
um, when writers do appear to be uh, suffering from writer's block, they're probably just mildly depressed. Uh, that's, that's all it is. Or alternatively, uh, they've got nothing to say. I mean, that is, that's the last possibility that writers ever actually visit when they say, if, if they say I've got writer's block, they would never say I've run out of ideas or I haven't got an idea in my head. It's, it's medicalizing the, the, the condition, writer's block. You don't suffer from writer's block, do you? Do um, no, I, no. I, I suffer from a plethora of deadlines of various sorts. Yeah, yeah. Whether they're um, in, you know, uh, in broadcasting or in writing. But you know, I was saying to somebody the other night, when you leave university and you do your last exam, you think that's it. You know, I've, I've done that, and you realise, whatever it is, forty years later, not not quite, uh, that you're. Um, you're still doing the same thing. You're writing to deadlines. You're producing. Yeah. You're having to be there. I you occasionally, know, I occasionally have dreams that I'm doing an exam oh, yes. in a subject that I have no yes. idea. Oh about. yeah, we, we all do that. this, don't we? Yes, exactly. Or as I'm, I'm at a party in my pajamas. Do you have that one? That's a, another really uh, awful one. But the writing the exam, it's in mathematics or something like that, and you yeah. don't, haven't got the first clue what it's about. My nightmare used to be when I was presenting The World at One, which was then done from Broadcasting House, I was standing at a bus stop outside the Treasury in Whitehall, because I worked at Westminster a lot, and the rain was coming down, and I was waiting, there wasn't a bus. And I looked at, the, at Big Ben, and it yes. was five to one. <laughs> and I would wake up absolutely really? yeah. shaking, yeah. And, and I would know, oh, it's that bloody dream again, but yeah. it was still going on. Yeah. So you have them yeah. too, good, it's, it's very nice, isn't it? But <laughs> you can assure us, as we come to the end of this uh, wonderful hour, which, uh, as I say, the Open University facilitated, which is marvelous, and which you can get on Apple iTunes, that the, the bubbling brook, the clear water that is flowing out of the rocks or wherever and covering these pages shows no sign of drying up. Well, I, I, I hope so. I hope that's the case. There's no sign of it in your own head? Uh, no, no, um, no, I, I, I don't think so, not at present. So, uh, but I, d I don't want to, uh, Nemesis is always um, stalking around, you know, and uh, one has to be careful about what one says. One has to be careful about what one says, <laughs> but we'll take that as a guarantee. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, can I say that uh, I've shared, I think, with you uh, the privilege of talking to Alexander McCall Smith. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. Ever just lovely, as ever. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store on London's Regent Street. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.